This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're here to talk about the global coronavirus pandemic. The great mask debate does not seem to want to end. People get into it with each other all the time. One of the main arguments for masks is they protect the rest of you from me if I'm sick and I'm breathing. Now a new study shows they also protect me from you. So we'll get into that. The race for a vaccine and proven treatment heating up. We will go into which therapy is likely to cross the finish line first and which vaccine is likely to be the most effective. Millions of Americans could be in for a double economic shock at the end of the week. They'll lose the extra unemployment money, and then the national moratorium on evictions is going to end. Hey, by the way, have you uh, stepped, not you, Mike, necessarily, but have any of you stepped on a scale lately? Maybe you don't want to because... Lots of people are gaining weight during this pandemic. I had an ice cream sandwich last night. Oh, good for you. Now that the elective medical procedures are happening again, we'll get into whether there's a demand for plastic surgery. But let's get back to masks and if they really do work. With us is infectious disease doctor Monica Gandhi from UC San Francisco. She's the author of a new paper titled Masks Do More Than Protect Others During COVID-19. So, doctor, uh, if we wear masks and get the virus? Are we less likely to, you know, really get sick? Concern about this coronavirus, why we're so panicked, is it's caused really severe illness. Um, And people have been hospitalized, and the case fatality rate is higher than influenza, and all of that's what's led to all the panic. And so um, the idea that a simple intervention, which should be wearing a mask, um, certainly protects others. That, I think, is pretty indisputable. But the idea that it would protect you from getting severe illness because less viral particles get in because you're protecting with the mask and driving up the rate of asymptomatic infection, not having symptoms, not making this a severe disease. That's a very simple way to um, reopen society. So it all comes down to that idea of viral load. The more of this you're exposed to, the worse of a case you're likely going to get because your immune system can't handle it all. Um, we obviously can't do experiments with this in real time with people. Uh, I guess you've done it on some animals or somebody has, but do we have real life examples of where this has worked that you point to? Yes. Sort of the, the, the article is really pointing to three pieces of evidence about the, what's called the viral inoculum or the dose and how sick you get. And the first is from animal models, um, because you're right, it's not ethical to, to give people, you know, higher doses of this virus. And so in lots of animal models from 1938 onward, we give uh, animals viruses and the higher dose that they're given, the more likely they are to get sick. Then this was done in humans um, with wild type influenza uh, in 2010 um, because it's not deadly. So the more influenza, it was in preparation for a vaccine. So the more human, the more influenza A, the more likely they were to get sick. And recently, in a hamster model from, uh, that we're replicating in our lab, uh, it's, uh, the hamsters were masked. I mean, they would, didn't have tiny little masks on, but they, they simulated masking conditions. And they were um, less likely to get COVID at all, by the way. But if they got it, they had very mild infection. And so that's with even this virus itself. So there's a lot of kind of animal and some human data on the virology. 
Now you make a, and then a, there's epidemiologic evidence. Okay, now you make another argument, uh, I believe, in, in reading your paper, which is interesting, I think. And I think, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your argument here is that by wearing a mask and, and perhaps then uh, not necessarily stopping the spread of the disease, but making it less severe or even asymptomatic, that in effect it'll it would allow you to get closer to that magical herd immunity that we keep talking about in a less painful way. Is that an accurate uh, conclusion? Yes, I mean that is exactly hope that there's a terrible way to get herd immunity um, from for this virus, which is to unleash it on a totally unimmunized society, have no protection, and people get really sick. And if New York and Italy are any example, they are going to be places where probably people are going to have lots more immunity, but it was at a great cost. And here, now that we know about masking, and I mean, we knew about masking earlier, so everyone really should be wearing a mask because it's, um, if we could drive up the rates of asymptomatic infection, and then asymptomatic infection gives you immunity from getting it again, which we have some evidence for then you've reached herd immunity um, in a much more painless fashion. Um, so it really has multiple advantages to reduce that inoculum and get higher and higher rates of disease. There were all these critiques of people who wouldn't wear their masks and people saying, why, why won't you be selfless? Why won't you do this for other people? So maybe just flip it and say, you know what, be selfish and wear your mask for you, and then you that's won't get exactly us sick. Right. <laughs> that, yeah, I mean, that's actually exact. That's why we want this out there so much. It, it's exactly right. You know what? It's, it's not even about civic duty anymore. Then just wear it for yourself and for your family. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't ask what kinds of masks. Uh, does it have to be... Uh, a surgical mask? Does it have to be an N95 that physicians wear? Can it be something that you, you, you know, you keep reading all this stuff, it needs to be three layers, two layers, one layer sandwiched between two pieces of sliced bread. What kind of mask <laughs> do we need to do we need to wear? So we do have a strong opinion about that because um, I do think the N95s, which filter out almost all viral particles, should be reserved for healthcare workers um, uh, because we have limited supplies. But any mask, uh, any mask filters out the viral particles. And I think it's acceptability rather than the exact right kind of mask. If you had to wear this all you're out in society, you're a school teacher, you're, you're, um, you're in the hospital, and we have to do this, we wear this all day, it's actually about comfort. And I would recommend, and I use for my family, this uh, very simple cloth mask that goes over with ear loops, it's snug, but it's not multiple layered, and it's going to filter out a majority of viral particles. Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious disease physician. Pharmaceutical companies and scientists in other labs are racing to develop a vaccine and effective treatment therapy for the virus. Does it matter who gets there first, and will whatever gets there first actually work? Let's look into some of the promising news here. Dr. Bertram Jacobs, virologist and director of the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State. So, doctor, they're working on the vaccines at warp speed. What about the treatments, though? Are we closer to something that's new? So, uh, certainly there are other things in testing. Remdesivir is probably what's gone furthest along. Um, I think the other thing that's moving along is interferon. It's a known it's one of the ways that our body is known to fight viruses, and we can make it synthetically and use that as an antiviral. So I think that's something that's moving along. Um, the other thing that, that's moving along is using 
antibodies from people who have recovered from the virus to treat people that are infected. Again, the, the, those are all modes that are that are moving forward. I, you know, remdesivir is going to move forward quickly, I believe, because, you know, we've had this drug for a while. We know a fair amount about it. It's been in human clinical trials. We have an idea of the safety profile, so it should move fairly quickly. But are we anywhere near having the kind of, of med that, uh, you know, somebody, they feel ill, they go and they get a test, comes back positive for COVID-19. Uh, they're starting to get some symptoms, nothing too severe. So they call their doctor and the doctor says, ah, you got COVID-19. Uh, here's a prescription. Go pick this up at the drugstore. Take this for five days and you'll probably be OK. Are we anywhere near something like that? No, not really. Um, you know, I think if some of these clinical trials look good, we can get there, but to, to, we're, we're not we're not near being able to do that. But again, putting things in perspective, you know, the the the, the virus that we've got really good drugs for, our HIV, that took uh, the, the first really effective combination of drugs was 1995, and we knew about the virus in the early 1980s. And so we're moving really quickly compared to the to where we have moved before, where anywhere anywhere we have moved before. The treatments that are being worked on and looked at, what are they shooting for? Is this a whole body response to to counteract the immune system from from going haywire or showing up a, yeah. a, a too much <laughs> too much of a level, or is this to limit yeah. lung damage? What are they trying to do? Well, I you know I think there 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 are lots of different things, and and all of the above is what it comes down to. Remdesivir, the idea is you inhibit the virus from replicating, and if it doesn't replicate, it can't cause damage. Uh, corticosteroids are, have been shown to be effective in late-stage disease. We know late-stage disease is an over-immune reaction. Corticosteroids are, are, are immune-suppressive. But it's a, you know, if you think about it, it's really tricky. We want our immune system to fight the virus. And yet we're saying, once you're infected with a virus, we're going to use an immune suppressant. And we have to do that because the late stages of disease are an overreaction. But in the early stages of the disease, we want our immune system to help fight the virus. It's what's so tricky about dealing uh, with this disease. Um, what works early is probably the opposite of what you want to use late. And what works late is probably the opposite of what you want to use early. And that makes it really tricky. Uh, we're going to run out of time. So very, if you can, a quick answer to this question. More likely to have uh, fairly good, effective therapeutics than before we have, if we have, an effective vaccine? Well, you know, that's a real hard one to say. I mean, you know, the, the Moderna trial has started. Um, thousands of people getting the vaccine or the placebo. If it works really well, um, we could have results of that pretty quickly. Um, but I have to say, a vaccine using the technology that Moderna is using has never been licensed for a human vaccine. And so, again, we are in really uncharted waters here. 
Dr. Bertram Jacobs, virologist, director of the School of Life Sciences, Arizona State. Doctor, thanks. Millions of people across the U.S. have lost their jobs since March because of the economic downturn and the shutdowns. The government helped them out by throwing in $600 extra a week in unemployment benefits and putting in place a national moratorium on evictions. But those safety nets, both of them, end this week, and there is no national plan in place yet to do anything about that. Peter Hepburn, sociologist and demographer at Rutgers, also researcher at the Eviction Lab. That's run out of Princeton. So, Peter, this doesn't bode well for a lot of people. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This has the making uh, makings of a major housing crisis, and that uh, inevitably has spillover effects for the economy as a whole. So some areas are extending protections. Others aren't. Is there some need for, for a national model for this? Because what happens? Do you expect a wave of evictions, or is it just a trickle-down effect on the overall economy? Because these things still would take time to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there there is every reason to be worried about uh, about a surge in new eviction filings and uh, a wave of people who are facing the prospect of losing their house, their homes, uh, you know, ending up in doubled-up housing, living with relatives, or potentially out on the streets. Uh, and those are exactly the sorts of circumstances in which this coronavirus appears to spread most aggressively. Um, so this is absolutely a public health uh, emergency that the, the, the public broadly should be taking seriously. Well, let's take first, for example, just the issue of the enhanced unemployment benefits, because there has been the argument that some people have been making, Republicans in particular, that uh, this extra $600, in some cases, some people were making more money than they were when they were working, so it was not an incentive for them to get a job. But the problem with that argument is that not as A, there are no jobs to get because so many places are closed and so many people are out of work. And even if you do, uh, if you just go back to your regular unemployment uh, insurance, that wouldn't be at the same level that you're getting paid at anyway, right? Oh, no. It would be far lower uh, if you were to go to, to default to uh, historical levels would be to reduce real income significantly for, for many people. Uh, this benefit has been a lifeline, um, and most especially for lower-income households, and those are the households that are most likely to be renters. Um, so this is what's keeping the rent paid for, for many millions of, um, of American households. What do you make of the freeze rent campaigns that pop up every every so often? You see them start to trend and you, you see a demonstration or you see a bunch of people tweeting about it. And they say at least for a month or a month or two, you got to waive all of this. But then you start thinking about the landlords and not every landlord. We think of landlords as these big corporations that run all these giant apartment buildings. But if you've got five or ten apartments, you're making payments on that. Maybe you've got a staff to keep the place up. I mean, your rent payments that you're charging are going to, to your mortgage and you're trying to support yourself like that. And if you're not getting money, then you're out of luck. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, there there are uh, options for some small landlords through the CARES Act to um, to receive mortgage forbearance that would allow them um, some some additional time to pay to make those payments and not to face any penalty. But not all mortgage carriers are offering those those sorts of forbearance agreements. Um, and you know, I think if we do see a wave. Of, of evictions and a large number of people unable to pay rent, that will absolutely translate into a larger number of foreclosures uh, across the housing market. And, and that has, you know, immediate negative repercussions in terms of 
the broader economy, but it also likely results in the consolidation of housing markets in fewer hands, which means more of those large corporations controlling a larger share of the housing market, which can have serious negative repercussions for renters in the long term. I don't want to be either particularly sanguine or uh, alarmist about this, but if we were to have this conversation, the three of us, in a month from now, what do you think we would be talking about? You know, I think a month from now is really the the the, the point at which this is going to become it's going to become much more clear what's happening. I mean, the next several weeks, there will be negotiations between Democrats and Republicans in the Senate to try to hammer out the next stimulus package. Uh, but the the um, the end of the current federal eviction moratorium, which happened this last Saturday, it, it actually doesn't it should not lead to any new eviction filings until late August, because there's a 30 day notice period that's written into this law um, that makes that requires landlords that were covered by the moratorium to provide a, a 30 day notification of, of intent to file for eviction. So we shouldn't actually be seeing this wave of of new eviction filings until after August 24th. We'll call you in a month. Peter Hepburn, sociologist, demographer at Rutgers, a researcher at the Eviction Lab, run out of Princeton. Peter, thanks. When you go off to college, there's the, you know, freshman 15 as you gain 15 extra pounds after leaving home. Well, maybe now we have something we may want to call the COVID-1919. There's growing evidence people have been gaining weight while sheltering at home. It's bad because obesity, one of the factors that could make COVID infection much worse. So with us is Dr. Scott Cahan, who directs the National Center for Weight and Wellness. Also, Darren Adam, presenter on Leading Britain's Conversation Radio out of London. Uh, Darren, people in your country actually being told by the government, you got to lose some weight. There's a new campaign. It all comes back down to COVID, yeah? Right. But I think it's also a consequence of COVID, because certainly here in the UK, we were locked down for about three months, pretty much comprehensively. And so it's difficult to exercise during that time. I don't know about you, but at the start of lockdown, everyone was promising that they were going to learn a foreign language and improve themselves in all kinds of different ways and and maybe start running more outside in the hour during which we were allowed to do our allotted exercise. That didn't happen. For a lot of people, quite frankly, it certainly didn't happen to me. So at the end of the three months, we had all put on a few uh, kilograms, as we would say here, or or pounds, as you would say. And I think part of the reason that the government now wants to address that is Boris Johnson himself had his own rather serious brush with COVID-19. And he has stated that one of the reasons it affected him so badly is that he is and had been for a while overweight. And so Boris Johnson, who tends to view life through a prism of things that have happened to Boris Johnson, has decided that we should all now lose weight (laughs) as a consequence. (laughs) So how is that being received? Does he get kudos for coming out and saying, look, I was heavy, this happened to me, or people like, yeah, where am I supposed to go? I can't get to the gym because it's not maybe healthy right now with the virus going around. What am I supposed to do? There's a package of measures. beginning with a £50 bike repair scheme, so you can get free vouchers from the government to to repair your bicycle. There's a plan to really boost cycling. Now, there is nothing that's going to get me on a bicycle, to be honest. I have a car. I'm a Um, grown-up. One of the reasons I love your city so much is that it's unashamedly a place where you can drive a, a motor vehicle around. So I'm very happy to drive to the gym, Uh, which is what I was doing before lockdown, but I I won't be getting on a bicycle anytime soon. And that has caused 
a bit of controversy with, with people saying that we don't have the space to create all of this new cycling infrastructure. But there's a really interesting contradiction here, which is at the same time as the government are saying you should lose weight, there's a, a cycling strategy in place, we want to encourage people back to the gym, we want to, uh, to t- sort of tempt people away from the fast food offers that are available in supermarkets, etc. All of that's happening on one side. But then with the other hand, what the government are doing from an economic point of view is giving half-price meal deals in restaurants and fast food outlets during the week <laughs> to, to encourage economic growth. And, and, and so people are not unreasonably looking at this and saying, has the Chancellor of the Exchequer actually spoken to the Prime Minister? Do, yeah. do they have conversations? <laughs> because this feels a little bit disjointed at the moment. That sounds like something we would do here, Darren. <laughs> Dr. Kahan, let, let, let me ask you. Uh, study after study that I've looked at over the past few months on COVID lists obesity as one of the, if not in some cases, the comorbidity leading to bad outcomes for people who get COVID-19. How seriously is this country taking that, and what are we doing? We just heard from Darren what they're doing over there. Yeah, you're right. The studies seem to show that obesity is an important risk factor for worsened outcomes with COVID. Part of that is likely because of the health problems that obesity predisposes to, like diabetes and high blood pressure. But there are also um, uh, reasons specific to the obesity itself. There tends to be more inflammation in the body when people gain weight, uh, and COVID seems to be an inflammatory-related disease, at least in part. So, um, you know, addressing obesity is going to be important for people's general health and very well may help to some degree in terms of uh, minimizing uh, the effects of COVID on many people's lives. In terms of what we're doing in the U.S., Unfortunately, not nearly uh, as much as we could uh, or should. Uh, The good news is for the past decade or so, we've been talking a lot about it, and that's a good thing. Before that, there wasn't much talk. There wasn't much political interest in the area, and there wasn't enough social will to to make change either. Uh, so we've got that under under our belts, and, and, and that's been moving us forward at least a little bit. But when it comes to real tangible uh, progress, we haven't seen too much of that. We haven't seen strong nationwide policies, whether on healthy food or physical activity uh, or the food or physical activity environments. And we certainly haven't seen um, uh, policies that increase access to evidence and science-based obesity treatments. There are many of them, including uh, intensive counseling strategies, including bariatric surgery, including FDA-approved medications. Uh, And while those are not appropriate for all, they are very effective treatments in many people. And just like we have to have them available for treating diabetes or blood pressure, they're important for uh, for treating obesity. Dr. Scott Kahan is uh, with the National Center for Weight and Wellness. Also, we had Darren Adam again from LBC Radio in London, leading Britain's conversation. Thanks to you both. You know, we do this show out of L.A., and so if we kind of felt the need for a little nip and tuck, it's not hard to find a plastic surgeon. But many of these surgeons had to put their work on hold when the pandemic started as hospitals postponed elective medical procedures. Now, that left... Lots of people waiting for things like nose jobs and facelifts. 
So has there been pent-up demand? KYW's Matt Leon talks to Dr. Stephen Davis, board-certified plastic surgeon in New Jersey, about how his practice has changed since all this got started. People were dying to come in. They really were, because a couple of reasons. And it was kind of like uh, this crazy situation where so many people were now working from home and doing all their things via a Zoom call. So there was a perfect opportunity for them to come in and get things done, but we couldn't do it because it was elective. So there was this clamoring to have a lot of uh, things done. So I knew that there was this base of patients that still wanted to come in and get things done because especially if you're on a lot of Zoom calls, you kind of see yourself all day long. And after seeing yourself for three months on Zoom calls, you start to pick out things on yourself that you go, you know what, I could fix this. I could probably fix that. This doesn't look so good. So we were starting to like hear this and it was funny because a lot of people call and leave messages or they would call because our people were still answering the phones and they would say, I gotta get in there because I saw myself on the Zoom call for a few hours and you know, it looks awful. So we knew that there were gonna be patients that wanted to come in, but I honestly didn't think that there was gonna be as many patients that really were considering doing things. And I'll tell you, um, one of the most interesting things for me was that patients understand that if you really do things in a safe manner with all this coronavirus stuff going on, there are things that you can do and still make sure that you remain as healthy as possible. And I think the hospitals know that, all the surgery centers, and I think even in an office setting now, I think the patients knowing that we're going through so many like hurdles and hoops to try to make this happen, I think that's really, really uh, what, what started this, I guess, surge of patients that are coming in. The other thing that um, I know is that so many people that I even consulted with and others that I've never met before had plans on going away for the summer, they were going to go to Europe, they were going to go on a trip somewhere, and now that since that's all been shut down, um, they've decided, you know what, I'm going to stay home. I might as well get these procedures done that I was thinking of doing maybe in January or December coming up, but I'm home, I'm doing nothing, I could stay home and work. So literally, we have patients that are getting their operations done, let's say today, and I would normally say you need a week or two off they don't need a week or two off because they're working from home and they're on a computer call. So as far as I'm concerned, I think it's opened up the opportunities for people to really say that they could do things like this and be very safe at recovering at home. They self-quarantine basically because they're home just working. So it's actually worked out to be very, very helpful. Here's a question. When you're at home, do you wear jeans? Now, I know that's kind of personal, but I'm going to ask it anyway. It seems most people don't, and this is taking a big toll on jean sales because so many people are staying and working at home now. Jean sales were already sluggish before the pandemic and now a lot worse. Levi's this month posted a 62% drop in second quarter revenue and announced plans to cut its corporate workforce by 15%. True Religion, Lucky Brand, and G-Star Raw have all declared bankruptcy since April. One analyst says people are turning toward activewear now, which they can wear just to relax or exercise. I am guilty of this. I get home and it's like instant thought is comfy clothes. I, I go home, I, I put on a suit and tie. <laughs> Tuxedo. <Yeah. laughs> 
Light a candle that, for dinner. Yeah, that's what people should do. A, a return to the 1940s. He Everybody misses fancy nice. restaurants. So. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks for listening to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. 